Welcome to season six of Soul Sessions with KK, the Aliyah series. Do you ever wonder how people leave everything behind and make a big move like Aliyah? Meet four brave women from different backgrounds and circumstances who made Aliyah. Some moved to Israel while they were single and some moved with their families. Whatever their journey, their stories will inspire you to take a little bit of Israel home with you or maybe even consider moving to Israel yourself. If you're thinking about potentially making Aliyah, I highly suggest just starting a conversation with Nefesh Benefesh and ask all of your questions. Please note that moving to Israel is a very serious decision that shouldn't be made without proper consultation, research, and strategy. Many have tried and failed, so it's important to do your due diligence. Hopefully, this series of four interviews will cover a lot of important ground. Enjoy the series. Hi everyone, welcome to the second episode of the Aliyah series. Today I get to speak with Dr. Aviva Goldstein and she talks to me about how when she moved to Israel 10 years ago with her family, she fulfilled a dream she had with her husband when they came for Shana Rishona. Aviva has her master's and doctorate from the field of education, and she talks to me about switching gears when she made Aliyah, from working at a school to working with people individually. Aviva and I also have a candid discussion about the different challenges that American kids have versus what Israeli kids have. And by working with gap year students, Aviva is able to help them adapt to Israeli culture and become more resilient. Among other topics, we speak about ADHD, since it's a very hot topic nowadays. Aviva challenges us to see ADHD not as a problem, but as a super strength. Whether it's ADHD or any other learning disability, we learn that knowledge is constantly evolving and nothing is fixed. Aviva helps us understand that while there are issues that are unique to America and unique to Israel, there are many things that are universal. One of them being our need for human connection. Before you listen to the show, I want to let you know that this episode can be found on Schmoozy. Click the link on my Instagram bio at coach.kk to listen and contribute to the discussion. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. I'm here today with Dr. Aviva Goldstein, and she's going to be talking to us about a very interesting topic, a topic that I have been aware of for quite some time and she has actually been doing a series of posts related to the subject and i needed to have her on the show today dr viva welcome to soul sessions with kk thanks so much for having me thank you it's an honor to have you on the show so can you tell the listeners right now how you decided to become a family counselor yeah sure so um I started in education. Um, I was always in that sphere. The truth is my first love is really special education. Um, I call that my gateway drug to what I do now. Um, but I was always like drawn to the kids that were struggling a little bit. You know, the ones in the back that are avoiding eye contact or their homework came in halfway done and kind of crumpled. I mean, obviously I was very connected to the kids in the front row with the sharpened pencils raising their hand, but I was always drawn to the ones that just sort of, I don't know, felt like they were slipping through the cracks. So um, when I got both my master's and doctorate degree um, from the School of Education at Yeshiva University, 
the Azraeli Graduate School of Jewish Education. I'll put in a plug because they're fantastic. Um, I was able to um, really choose not a major, but an area of focus. And so I was really always on the psychology side of education. So all of the developmental, behavioral, emotional, um, psychosocial, all that kind of stuff that has to do with education. Nice. Um, And we reached a point in our personal lives where, you know, both of us were really satisfied professionally. Um, I was very much immersed in like the North American Jewish education school system. Um, I very much knew what my place was going to be like over that trajectory. And then um, after years and years and years of hoping and trying and working on it, we were able to make Aliyah. Interesting. Um, which was amazing. Um, and thank God it's been really, really an incredible experience. The only issue is that once we got here, I was turned completely upside down professionally um, because I had no idea what to do. I, I had no idea how to plug in my passions and my strengths into the education system here. Why is that? Yeah. It's just, it's a fundamentally different education system, not better or worse. Like for sure, my kids are getting an amazing education and their schools aren't perfect. Just like if we live in the States, my kids would get an amazing education and the school would be imperfect. Um, It's just a totally different system. So I was really left thinking like, okay, but my life has always been sort of under the hashkacha of a school. Right. And with the haskama of, you know, administrators and board members. And I really just didn't know what to do. Um, And I was um, actually finishing up the the doctorate at the time. And two of my closest mentors who now, thank God, I can call them like very good friends. um, Doctors David Palkovitz and Rona Novik, who are on the faculty at Azraeli. They it was really I have to give them all the credit. They were the ones who pushed me. They said, Aviva, whatever you would have done in a school, just do it privately. And I was like, you're crazy. What are you even talking about? Uh, But they really pushed me. And they said, you know, you weren't going to do anything clinical anyways. You weren't going to be running a school anyways. So at the point that your passion is like where these big moments happen in a kid's life and knowing that there are different paths that they can choose and that their parents can help them choose and navigating all of that complex stuff, just do it privately. Um, I had massive, massive imposter syndrome. I mean, all these years later, I definitely still do. Um, But I give them all the credit. They are the ones who really pushed me. And sure enough, I got my first client and that led to another, led to another, led to another. And now I have this crazy practice here in Jerusalem where I work with really little kids and tons of adolescents, tons and tons and parents and families and teachers. And um, the vast majority of my practice right now happens to be North American gap year students. Um, the seminary and, and programs that are not from. Mm-hmm. Um, that was really the evolution of the decision. Like, it's not like I went in thinking like, oh, this is what I'm going to do. But the truth of the matter is like, not to be like totally great as showman, but like, this is really who I'm meant to be. Like, I, <laughs> I absolutely love like my work. I love doing it. I feel like I totally hit the jackpot. I feel like the luckiest professional in the world. Um, that's it. Yeah, really, really Barakshev. It was amazing, amazing. And the craziest thing is that I had such a clear vision of where I thought I was heading when we were in the States. Um, and had I followed that, I literally never would have ended up doing this because I always would have been in the comfort of a school, mm-hmm. you know, and I never would have gone out on my own. So um, lots of different, you know, hashkacha pieces in play for sure. Right. Um, but that's, that's how I kind of got to where I am. Wow. Can you tell us a little bit about, 
your decision into making Aliyah, why you decided to make Aliyah. If you were, you had a good job, your husband had a good job, everything was fine. So what made you guys make this decision to leave <laughs> yeah, everything behind? It was behind? crazy. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it was the kind of thing that like, you know, we had both sort of hoped and dreamed for, you know, when we were younger, we had both been here a zillion times and, you know, any rally that needed attending, we would attend, you know, we were, we were definitely that type. Um, when we first got married, this is actually a great story that sort of comes full story. When we first got married, we came to Israel for the year. Um, and it was amazing and so not real life, right? Shana Rishona, we're like, neither of us is working and somebody is taking care of us and we're like hanging out and being cutesy and whatever. Um, but it was amazing. It was an amazing, amazing experience to be here for that year. And towards the end of the year, it was Erev Yom Hatzmaut. And we decided that rather than going to one of like the big parties or one of the big celebrations, we really wanted to just wander the neighborhood and just hear and see and smell how like, you know, quote unquote, real Israelis were celebrating. And so we did. And we wandered through these amazing neighborhoods and back alleys. And we heard the music and we smelled the barbecues and we saw the fireworks and it was amazing. And we ended up in this like random area that we really didn't recognize. Um, and we were standing like literally sort of draping our fingers over a, a chain link fence um, because on the other side of the fence was this huge, I want to call it a field, but it was like paved and there were tons and tons of kids and teenagers and they were all wearing blue and white and there were Israeli flags everywhere and the music was blasting and these kids were dancing and singing and it was crazy and there was like not an adult in sight. Okay, we had no idea what this was, but we are standing there at the end of this magical year, dreading going back to the States, and we are sobbing. The two of us are literally standing at the fence, sobbing, like, A, I can't believe our year is ending. B, this is, like, amazing. And C, like, halavai our children one day, right? Like, all Hi. our hearts were exploding. Fine. Um, we end up finishing our year. We came back to the States. A million Gilgulim later, we do make Aliyah. Um, and in Israel, youth movements are a very, very, very big deal. Yeah. I don't remember the exact percentage, but an enormous, enormous, uh, you know, I don't know the statistic, but enormous percentage of Israeli kids are involved in youth movements. And so um, when we made Aliyah, our oldest one was in first grade, and that was really the impetus to go when we went so she could start you know, with school here. Right. Um, but the youth movement that she was going to be a part of starts in third grade. So she'd gone a million times starting, you know, beginning of third grade. And we drove her, you know, back and forth and did carpool and the whole thing. Um, and it comes to Yom Ma'ut of her third grade. So it's her first Yom Ma'ut when she's part of her um, youth movement. And we dropped her off a million times, but we were just curious, like, how are these kids going to celebrate? Completely forgetting that moment we'd had all those years earlier. So we park the car and we go over. And sure enough, we are standing at the exact same fence that we had stood at all those years oh my ago. God. <laughs> it was exactly the same, the That's same place. So it was the same chapter. And now it was our kid who was this little tiny third grader going in. And we told, we didn't even realize that we were in the same neighborhood until we stood there and like recognized where we were. And the PS of the story is that that little girl that was in first grade when we made Aliyah, um, this spring is becoming a madricha of the oldest kids in that sneef, which oh is like, you know, my. the coolest, whatever. Yeah. Um, so it really, it has come full circle and it's been just, you know, really amazing. It's been profoundly meaningful to be here um, and to raise our kids here. It's just, I mean, we see bracha literally everywhere we look. 
Um, and we just mm. feel so, so, so blessed that it's been a success for us. Wow, that's very interesting because you're giving the version of like the first love, love at first sight. You know, you moved to Israel during Shana Rishona and your husband and you, you guys were in love with each other. It was the first oh. year, you know, butterflies in the sky and everything is great and dandy. But usually after people make, you know, people go on vacation to Israel. They say, oh, it's amazing. Israel's amazing. And people are like, you don't know the real Israel. Living in Israel is very different than going on a vacation in Israel, than doing Shana Rishona in Israel. So how does that apply with you? Is it all like sunshine and butterflies in Israel? Like all that oh, youth movements? No, nothing is yeah, sunshine of course. and butterflies <laughs> all the time. That, that's the truth, right? And I think part of it is um, when people come having been here for vacation a million times and then they're like, oh, I just want that. So yeah, you're going to have disappointed expectations because your expectations don't match with reality. Like I still have to go to the DMV and I still have <laughs> to understand my water bill and I still have to, you know, figure out all these crazy things about living here. But you have to like weigh, is it worth it, right? And like, in our mind, 100% it is. We have not looked back once. Um, and also, we're, we're very cognizant of trying to remember, like, not everything works in America either. Yeah. Right? Like, the DMV in America is annoying, just like the DMV in Israel is annoying. Oh, yeah. You know, and, like, <laughs> the Postal Service, you can get annoyed at them also. Right? Like, so that that's also part of it. Like, to not lose sight of, you know, some fantasy of what our lives could have been had we just, you know, gotten the house with the yard in the basement in Bergenfield. Like, it... It, there, there would have been annoying things there too, you yeah. know, but at least for us, the, the amazing outweighs the annoying. Um, and yeah. so I, we're definitely realists for sure. And there are definitely times when we have been frustrated, but that hasn't like canceled out how for much sure. we want to be here. For sure. So I have a question. So being a psychologist in the States versus being now a psychologist in Israel, I know you deal a lot with like gap year students and North American Jewry, but overall, do you feel like the problems that are in the States and the problems that are in Israel, are they similar? Are there differences? Can you tell us a little bit about that? It's such a good question. Um, and I'll give a spoiler just between you and me and however many listeners we have one day. It's, it's the book that I have in my head that I haven't written, but like, that's the book that I want to write. Um, and also just a, a small correction. I'm not a psychologist. Okay, it's important yes. that I never pretend to be something that I'm not or confused. My, both my master's and my doctorate are from the school of education. I happen to work in the field of psychology. Okay. Um, thank so you for clarifying that. No, I, I always, I never want somebody to think that I am something that I'm not. Um, yeah, okay, so there's certain things that I think are universal. Um, you know, sibling rivalry and adolescents fighting with their parents and everybody is on their phones too much. I don't care what community you're coming from, right? There, there's certain things that are universal for sure. Um, and then there's like the basket of issues that are unique to Israeli kids or unique to North American kids. Um, yeah, well, I, I want to hear about that. Yeah. Okay. So I find um, when the students come for their year in Israel after having been in the States all these years, um, a lot of them are just exhausted, just totally fried because the academic expectations that our system has set forth for these kids is, is really incredible. And it's remarkable how much these kids achieve, um, but they're fried, right? Like they have been running a race they didn't even realize they were competing in 
for years. So by the time they get to 18 and they graduate senior year, they come here and they're ready to learn and they're thirsty and they want to drink it up. But I think some of it is because it's like, you're not getting graded. Like this is total lishma. You don't have to worry about your resume and you don't have to worry about the extracurriculars and you don't have to worry about studying for the exams. Like it's totally just to nourish your soul. Um, and so it's not like we don't have high academic standards here in Israel. Like my kids are learning a ton. Their education is really, really, really extraordinary, but we, it, we don't have the same like systemic pressure. pressure. Like it's not like everything is a race to college. That's just not, it's just not how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's like a big fundamental difference. And it also, there's a, a trickle down effect, I think, because of the pressure. So that means that every moment of a child's time in the U.S. is measured very carefully. I have to drive you to basketball practice and then you have to go to debate team and then you have to study for the science exam and then you have to do this covers and it's, and it's, 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 um, it's like a race. Yeah. It's programmed and you're, and you're on the clock. Whereas Israeli kids, because they don't have that really heavy pressure, I think that's part of why they have all this time for youth movements, mm. right? And the youth movements are all about like actualizing potential and understanding that there's something greater than you and being part of something really enormous that matters and rising to leadership and taking care of the young ones and being involved in the community. And like when you have time, that's amazing, right? Yeah. But like, if you're juggling all these things that our kids are juggling in the States, you don't really have time for that kind of experience, yeah. you know? It's the um, same thing with adults. For sure. Oh, for sure. For sure. In New York, especially, it's a rat race. You're constantly juggling. You never have time. And I find that, in I mean, in Israel, there's other pressures. I know people are tense there, perhaps for other reasons, but it's not like, the pressure of New York and the hustle and the overworkload. So yeah, that's For very sure. interesting. For sure. Yeah, you definitely see it with the adults also. What about with Israel? Like, what do you see are the problems with Israeli people or people who live in Israel? No, there are no problems with Israelis. We have no, no. problems. <laughs> no, no, there are no problems here. <laughs> oh, no, not at all. Alibi, alibi. <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting. I think one of the the challenges here is that because society is so informal, um, kids grow up on the one hand with this gorgeous total comfort level with everyone and everywhere that they go. Um, but there is a bit of a lack of structure, you know, there's a bit of a lack of, um, you know, deadlines can kind of be fudged and you can kind of talk your way into the, okay, okay, you have a said there, like, Right. So on the one hand, it's like amazing, but it would kind of be nice if there was a bit more of like that structured discipline here. Right. Uh, right. I don't know. You know, there's this other thing that that I find fascinating, which is that um, and, and this isn't a chiddish, but we know um, that kids in North America, especially this generation, is they're really, really struggling with notions of resilience and grit um, and that when things are hard, we know I'm not making yeah. this up like this generation of kids has a very hard time dealing when things are hard and and also their parents do yeah right like our grandparents did not no right our grandparents not. if they thought if they heard us call what we say is hard yeah. they would be like oh yeah you want to hear hard i'll tell you hard right Those i would say even my even my own parents right whatever's right. hard for me is like what you're, you're upset about this correct i escaped correct. iran in you know 1979 <laughs> exactly 
Exactly. And we're like, oh, I don't know. The debate team lost. Yeah. Right? Yeah. God forbid. I'm not mocking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Way, but, but we know, we know that, it, that hard things are very hard for this generation of kids. Um, and in, in, in some ways, we see the opposite here in Israel, which goes a little bit hands in hand with like the lack of structure. But Israeli kids are like, bring it. Like nothing's too hard. Like mm. I can handle anything. And some of it, I think, is right having to do with that lack of structure. Israeli kids spend a lot of time without supervision. And so they learn how to get things done and they know how to make lunch and um, they make plans on their own with their friends, like without having the mom call the mom or the dad call the dad or calling the teacher. Like the kids call their teachers when they have a question. Mommy doesn't call the teacher. So, so interesting. Israeli kids are like, I mean, they're tough. And so it's like they turn into these adults that we like to sort of make fun of a little bit. Like, what do you mean you're going to, I don't know, backpack to Africa for six months? Right. But they're like, well, like, why wouldn't I, right? Like, I've been totally independent. And so, you know, um, so that's, that's something that I see as, as a big difference. Um, and I see it predominantly when I'm working with the gap year students, that, that when things are hard, they're like insurmountably hard. Right. Do you think the COVID-19 pandemic, obviously we're going to talk about that because we're in it. Um, <laughs> How could we you, not? <laughs> right. Do you feel like this had an effect on the generation of kids who are having a difficult time with difficult things, that maybe this was the impetus? Or do you think that perhaps devices and screen time is sort of like a numbing mechanism for them so that they don't have to deal with the lockdown and the pandemic and everything hard that goes along with it? Yeah. I, you know, it, I think there's a complicated answer, and, and some of it is that, first of all, we don't have enough data. Yeah. We have a few, a few really good, reliable studies that have been done, but they're all short-term. We don't have any longitudinal data yet because we're too close. Um, and most of the data that's come out from the research that's been done is saying that our, our kids are actually going to be fine. And in the short term, they might be having a lot of anxiety or depression or moments of just loss of motivation and breaking down or whatever. But um, what what the research so far, please, God, it'll continue to show this, is that the kids are really going to be OK. That for all of our fears about this really scarring them long term, um, hopefully will be unfounded. With that said, the anxiety that kids are feeling is real. And it's exhausting and it's debilitating. Um, but I have found that there are like different categories of, we'll call them Corona kids, because like, you know, of all the ages, from like the toddlers to the teenagers, that everybody's had to adjust. Um, there are those that have really struggled um, consistently. There are those that have had really hard moments, but have powered through either intentionally or by the grace of God, but they've made it through to the other end of those moments. And then there is a large group, and I feel like adolescents get a bad rap, and I happen to love adolescents, so I'm going to stick up for them for a minute now. Great. There is a huge group of adolescents all over the world um, that have been enormously resourceful, and because they're better at the tech stuff than we are, let's face it, they know how to use it for bad, but they also know how to use it for good. And there have been chesed initiatives and programs and reaching out to the isolated, you know, elderly. In the, I mean, a million, million, million different things um, that young adults have been able to accomplish. Some of them have been asked to do it by the adults. Many of them did it on their own. Um, and that's been incredible. And it's one of those moments where we say, like, okay, guys, like, I know we make fun of you for being a wimpy generation. And I know we say that you're on your screens too much, but like, maybe you are going to do a better job 
taking care of this world than we have, you know, like, I, I, I don't know. I just feel, even though I, in my work, I see the ones that are having the hardest time. I have like a very deep sense of optimism about what this generation is going to be able to do once we let them. I think so many <laughs> once people. Once we stop supervising them. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I really think so many people need to hear this because we're constantly hearing about the negatives and how all these screens that they're using is going to have a really terrible effect on their future. And what are they going to be when they grow up? They're just going to be influencers. Like what do these kids have going for them? So thank you for bringing a positive spotlight on them that they're more than just millennials or what are they, what are they called now? Not millennials. I'm a millennial. I don't even know. Now we're now they're Gen Z. They're Gen Z. I think I'm a millennial. (laughs) They're Gen Z. I always get confused. (laughs) Generation Y, baby boomers. Um, there's just so the many right now. Sorry. We actually have a really, we have really, really interesting data about how teens use their screens, not just how long um, or how much, I should say, but how they use it. And one of the things we know is that they, um, they'll use multiple, i call it screens same time um so laptop itself yeah, it's seventeen different windows and they're opening back and forth and they're checking their dms on instagram and they're also whatsapping there's a million things going on at the same time so the average teen the last study i think was somewhere around nine and a half hours this is before corona the average teen was doing somewhere around nine and a half hours a day on their screens but when they amortized essentially like brain energy because they're toggling between so many different things, it actually equals something like 11 and a half or 12, like brain hours, let's say, using the screens. So yeah, they're using it too much. Yeah, they are for sure. But like also teachers are giving them, you know, science assignments to do and they have to research and that's also on the screen, meaning not all of those nine and a half hours are just looking at Instagram. They're also doing their homework and, you know, looking into all kinds of things. Um, And they are using it to socialize and like in some ways that's healthy, you know. Aviva, you talk a lot about ADHD and I know ADD is under ADHD. It's getting a lot of buzz lately, especially on my end. I don't know if like social media is trying to send me a message. I don't know if I'm like Googling stuff and I keep seeing things about ADHD. And then one of the things I saw was that a couple of posts (laughs) (laughs) that you put up about ADHD. So what is the difference between ADHD and ADD? And if we can talk about it a little bit. Sure. It's the easiest question to answer of all the questions that you're probably going to ask me. (laughs) ADD is attention deficit disorder. ADHD is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. They just added the hyperactivity. Some kids, and we're talking about kids for a minute, some kids present ADD um, or ADHD with hyperactivity. Some kids don't, um, just inattentiveness. But clinically, technically, officially, they just now call it ADHD. That's like the technical name of like the umbrella of all of them. Um, and you can have ADHD without the activity. Growing up, ADHD wasn't really taken okay. seriously. People would often say, oh, I have ADD. How did ADHD become like an official diagnosis? And how does one find out if they have it or if their child has it? So it's it's a good question because the reality is that 
the nature of knowledge very much is that it's constantly evolving. And hopefully, if human, humanity is doing the right thing, it's growing. So the longer we're involved with something, the more hopefully we know about it. So when you and I were kids, ADD, ADHD was definitely a thing. Yeah. Um, but I don't think there was as much awareness about what it actually meant. Tachlis what it actually meant. Um, and so you kind of knew which kids were ADD in your class and you kind of knew some of them had a medicine and you kind of knew different things. Um, but one of the things that's been incredible in recent years is as we know more about the mechanisms of ADHD and we know so much more about the neurology and the biology and the chemistry of all this years is that we have been um, very uneven in diagnosing ADD, ADHD, and that statistically boys are seriously more likely to have a diagnosis than girls. So that interested a whole bunch of researchers and they looked into it and it turns out that boys are not more likely to have it, they're just more likely to be diagnosed with it. The symptoms very often show up differently in boys than they do in girls because it's a developmental thing. And we know, gender, politics aside, we know that brains develop differently. Um, and so as it's a developmental thing, a lot of the symptoms, not always, but statistically tend to show up differently across genders. Again, this is, we're going on statistics, we're not going on anecdotes, but statistically boys are more likely to have the hyperactivity piece and girls are more likely to have the inattention piece, the inattentive piece. Um, and so if there's a boy who's hyperactive and jumping off the furniture and running around and being crazy, um, many adults will either say, oh, boys will be boys, or they'll take notice and he might get a diagnosis for ADD. Whereas if a girl is inattentive, they might just say, oh, she's like a little flaky. Right? Yeah. Like, oh, she's such a space cadet. But the, the, the logical jump is not always, oh, maybe I should find out why she's a space cadet. But this many, many times um, replicated it, sorry, that they found that girls tend to be um, much less diagnosed um, than males do. How does, that, how does that affect us short term and long term? Short term, it means that there's something going on in classrooms across the world um, that's sort of happening on the DL, and the kids aren't. It means that there are kids that may or may not be at a disadvantage academically that we're not necessarily aware of, but it translates in really, really interesting ways, and this is, I think, what the, what the internet world has been sending your way. Um, now that we know what we do, and the, um, I would say, like, the chronology of what we know is at a point where we now have women, wives, mothers, professionals, grown women, that were girls when this stuff was first coming out, that were not diagnosed or misdiagnosed with something else. And they are now as adults coming to realize, holy moly, I'm a grown adult. I think I have undiagnosed ADHD. And, and that's the really interesting thing that you see with the progression of knowledge is that we don't stay static and the knowledge doesn't stay static. The science doesn't stay static, right? As time goes on, we learn more. And that means that what we didn't know when you and I were 11, maybe we do know now that we're older, 
right? So, so first of all, it means that um, educators and parents and doctors are paying much more attention um, to picking up important signals with young girls now. But it also means we have a whole bunch of moms, and I don't mean to say a lot moms, but I think they're the ones that sort of get this into the stick that, again, we've explained away, oh my God, I'm just so distracted. I have so much on my plate. I'm so busy. I'm so this and so that. And that's why I can't remember where I put this thing or I forgot the doctor's appointment or I, whatever, because it's like, well, yeah, there's truth to that. We are distracted and we are pulled in a million directions, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the only explanation. Um, and so I actually think there's an important distinction to be made, which is just because there's a distracted mother. There's like a classic, I don't know, it's like lore in my family with my mother-in-law, with whom I'm very close and I adore her and I have her permission to share this story. But, you know, when she was a young mom, she had three little boys and it was always crazy in the house and she was unpacking groceries one time um, and she was searching the house for the phone. She couldn't find the phone. Turns out she put it in the freezer when she was unpacking groceries, <laughs> right? Okay, so we all have some crazy That happened to me, right? yeah. <laughs> you know, you'll search for... Yeah, she'll search the whole house for her glasses only to find that they're, you know, sitting on her head, right? So, okay, we're all distracted, right? Right. So we all have some version of, I put the phone in the freezer, right? Right. But that's not the same as saying, like, shoot, I think, I think the doctors missed something. Like, I think there's something going on with me. That That's a totally different category. And I think that's a, an important distinction to draw. How does one know that they don't just have, like, basic forgetfulness Someone like me, I'll, I'll give me as an example. For as long as I can remember, I tend to forget where I put things. I can't think mm -hmm. straight for like more than like a minute. Like my mind is like jumping all over the place. In high school, I got extra testing. I, get, I got extra hours of testing, but I never really realized if I actually had ADHD or ADD. I never, I don't know if I ever got like a real diagnosis, but there was something definitely there. And now as an adult, I, I don't know if it's undiagnosed. So, okay. So first of all, I'll just say the, the series that I post on Instagram that you referenced, I cannot tell you the response was overwhelming. <laughs> Friends of mine that I've known for a thousand years, strangers, total strangers that I've never met, reached out to me like, oh my gosh, you're blowing my mind. You're changing my life. And I just put up some statistics. That's really all it was. Um, but it's like amazing when you realize, oh my gosh, I've been struggling with something for as long as I can remember. Maybe there's an explanation for this. Right. And again, you might just be forgetful. There are some people, they're just flaky. That's fine. They can just be flakes. Right. But okay. If, if you think this applies to you, right? So first of all, I mean, the worst possible thing to do is Google, but like Google, yeah. it, right? And, <laughs> and between childhood ADHD and adult ADHD, there's somewhere between seven to nine to 11 main symptoms, depending on who, who you're looking at. And I think the, I think the diagnostic threshold if there, if someone's looking at the list of seven or nine symptoms, I think if a child has five of those symptoms is for an adult, but you can, I mean, it's not, it's not complicated, um, for the layman to read. You can really, if you suspect that you're reading this list and you're like, uh, that's me, that's me. That you reach out to someone and you say, Hey, like there's this thing that's going on my whole life. I kind of just always accepted it or tolerated it, or maybe I hated it about myself, but, but it's just always been, 
you know, can we can we look into this? Right. Where does one start? Like how besides Googling as an adult, you know, someone like me or anybody who's listening to this, if they want to figure out if they have ADHD or ADD, is it important to get a diagnosis or are there ways to deal with certain issues without a diagnosis? Yeah. Um, okay. So look, I'm not obsessed with getting a diagnosis for the sake of like having a title. That's like not my thing at all, but very often it's just a relief for people to know that there's an explanation for patterns that they've experienced, you know, over the course of their life. Um, so like, you know, in terms of medications and insurance and all kinds of like official stuff, maybe it matters, maybe it doesn't. I care much less about that. I care more about sort of like the soul of the person. And for many people, there's, there's something very comforting knowing, Oh, I'm not just like a flaky idiot. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like for some people, it's very helpful to know. Um, with that said, if you don't want to go through the whole process, you really can just look up the list of symptoms and if you see yourself in that list that'll give you a pretty good idea um one sort of like the the easiest or i'd say the the lowest threshold way um of dealing with it is medications and medications some people are super pro and some people are super anti um what's your stance on it so i'm really not a one-size-fits-all person with anything, not about education, not about religiosity, not about like anything. I'm really not a one size fits all. Um, so with that said, I think there's some people who absolutely, you know, the medication is not the right answer, but there are other people that it's a game changer, Mm -hmm. you know? And like, if you have pain in your ear and you can't figure out why, and you go to the doctor and he's like, well, dude, you have an ear infection. You're probably going to take the antibiotic because it's going to make the pain go away. Right. So I really right. believe that all of this mental health, neuro, neuro, neurological health, all this stuff is the same thing. Like if we're going to treat an ear infection, let's treat the other stuff too. Cause it really does affect us on like a deep, profound neshama level and chaval if we treat it less than an ear infection. Mm-hmm. Um, but with that said, medication is not simple. Like there are a, a whole bunch out there again, thank God for science, right? They've right. been able to come up with a million different types of medications and, some affect your appetite, some affect your exhaustion, and some yeah. affect your mood. And, and, you know, until you find the one that's right for you, it, it's definitely, uh, you has the potential to be a process. But some people get it right on the first one. They get the right medication. They get the right dose. And all of a sudden, they're like, oh, this is what things look like? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> right. Right. Do you think that today more and more people are perhaps getting diagnosed with ADHD because of the atmosphere of our culture. Whereas 20 years ago, we didn't have all these constant distractions. But now, because of everything that's going around with our phones, we can't focus on one thing more than 30 seconds, maybe perhaps even less. Do you think this might be contributing to the problem? Or is this something on its own? Like, is it genetic? I don't even know. Yeah, a lot of people have a lot of opinions about that. I'm not sure I've seen anybody, like, substantiate that opinion. Um, There are a lot of smart people that make smart arguments that that say, yes, it is more than it used to be, and others that say, no, it's not. We know there is a genetic component to it. We haven't quite figured out what that genetic component actually means. Um, We know that 
particularly young children, and again, particularly boys, but girls fall into the category also. Again, statistically, um, when they're on um, a screen and they're overusing the screen, whatever the threshold is for overusing, depending on which measure we're looking at, um, the behaviors that they often demonstrate are very often behaviors that are also ADHD behaviors. And so it takes a really skilled, gifted clinician to be able to know the difference. Very, We know that a lot of kids are being diagnosed with ADHD, um, but they haven't really isolated, well, what would happen if we went on the screens less and played outside more? So we know that for sure is happening. Um, I, I, I have a hard time drawing like a causational relationship. It's because of the atmosphere. So now we all have ADHD. I'm, I'm not comfortable saying that. Right. I do think we have a lot more awareness. I do think teachers have a lot more awareness. Um, and I think that's why kids often get caught, you know, before it's too late. The, kid, the teacher will notice something and they'll say, hey, let's pay attention to this thing going on with the kid. Whereas adults, like who's going to catch us? Right. Right. Before we don't really supervising our day to day. So um, I think that's a factor also. Um, but with that said, and, and this sort of goes to the question you're speaking about before, the, the beauty of the human mind and, and the human capacity to thrive is that almost everything that is challenging to us um, has a partner that's learnable. Almost every behavior is learnable. Um, and so whether somebody decides to take medication or not, there are just enormous resources out there um, to help, right? Like even if you don't have ADHD, but you are a little bit scatterbrained. So like, what can I do to not be so scatterbrained, right? right? Or I have a hard time focusing or I yeah. talk too much or any of the, any of the things. Um, and and if you find a really good ADHD coach or a really good psychologist that specializes in this, very often they're not going to rush to the medication first. Very often they'll talk about skill development and coping mechanisms and strategies. And that's amazing because mm -hmm. that's really just building our arsenal of self-awareness. Right. That's all that is. We build that for ourselves and for our kids. That's amazing. Yeah. I know something that helps me. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I have ADHD or ADHD, but I do know that something I do struggle with is just focusing on one thing for a long time. Like lots of things like jump into my brain, but something that helps me focus is writing down lists, like writing down like what I need to do. And I focus on that thing that I have to do one at a time. Also, to help me remember what to take with me or what to do, I have to see it. And like, that's how I am in the classroom. That's how I'm at home. If I don't see it, I forget about it. So if I have to remember to bring your phone or bring your keys with you, it has to like be somewhere where I have to see it to remember. So that's something that I do to help myself with certain tendencies that I have. Do you have any? It's amazing. It's amazing that you were able to sort of develop that on your own. Like, that's what I'm saying. A lot of these these strategies, all, like I said, they build our arsenal of self-awareness, which is like, isn't that the whole thing, right? Like, aren't we just supposed to figure ourselves out so we can connect with each other? Like, yeah. that's the whole story, guys, right? So, um, so I, I think that's amazing. Um, 
the other thing that's interesting, there's the flip of this, is there's a whole movement now that says, like, let's stop only looking at ADHD as, like, a deficiency in something, and let's look at the flip side of that, which is we know statistically that people with ADHD tend to be creative yes. and spontaneous and high energy and like couldn't we all use a boost of that like yeah. why are we only looking at this as a, as a deficiency so um, you know corporations have been able to really capitalize on that educators that are doing things right are capitalizing on that right because if you think about it impulsivity and spontaneity are really just two sides of the same coin really yeah. right yeah. so so if we're not so into our kids or ourselves having like major impulsivity, but we can channel that into being spontaneous, like amazing, yeah. right? Like that's the gift. That's so, so true. So that's the other piece of it, especially when we're dealing with kids and their self-esteem is just being built. Like this is not like a bad thing. It just demonstrates how much our brains are just different. Our yeah. bodies are different. Our noses are different. Our brains are different. That's just what it is. So if I there's love a that. strength to be pulled out of this, let's use that. Oh my gosh, let's use it, you know? I love that that you brought that up because that's such an important element to this conversation that ADHD or ADD is not necessarily something that we have to inhibit and put away and suppress. It could be used for the good, just like other quote-unquote weaknesses can be used as strengths. Um, I know many people who, let's say, struggle in the classroom and they can't sit still. They have to move around. And unfortunately, so many schools reject children like this, the children who can't sit at their desk for, you know, 15 minutes at a time that they constantly need to move around. And there are schools that do support these children that have spaces for them to move around and be creative and they don't have to just sit on a desk like, and there's like a brick wall behind them. The school systems need to accommodate more and more kids who aren't the typical obedient, sitting down type of child that maybe we need to have more resources and environments that enable them to be creative, to be spontaneous, and to contribute to the greater society. For sure. For sure. And look, at the same time, it's it, there's a fine line because um, there are kids who may have certain tendencies, but they really would benefit from um, more structure, more boundaries, more discipline at home and in school. And we know that like this generation of parents, we know that we're overindulgent much more than our parents were with us. We know that. And so on the one hand, we want to be able to create environments that set these kids up for success to be functional adults in our society. And that means that even if you have a tendency to not be able to sit still, you have to figure out how to sit still. Like how else are we going to go on an airplane? Right. At the same time, because it's such a fine line, we have to help kids, adults, I would argue for sure, find the space to embrace those other parts of them so that it really is viewed as a gift. And, and it's not simple, right? Like it's super, yeah. super complicated and there's nuance there. Yeah. Um, I think it's possible if we dream enough. I, I do think it's possible. I love that. I love how you brought that up. There needs to be there needs to be a balance because. Yeah. We are, we are also part of a society and there are places that you can't just do whatever you want. You have to do what everybody else is doing. Like, for example, a plane. 
If you need to sit on the plane for 12 hours, you can't just stand up and say, no, I have ADHD. I have a doctor's note. Right. I can stand up. Right. Or even in, even in the most child-friendly, you know, come-as-you-are kind of show, there are certain times in davening where it needs to be quiet, period, the end, right. right? And so we have to be able to find ways to teach that structure, but to teach it lovingly and to teach it with warmth but also find ways to embrace these other sides, these other elements of, of our personalities and our kids' personalities. I love that, Aviva. That's okay, good. Beautiful. Now let's make it happen. <laughs> yes, Bezrat Hashem. Bezrat Hashem. Aviva, as a family counselor, what do you see as the number one issue amongst children, teens, and adults? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so... I don't know that I would say there's like one universal problem or challenge. I do think there's one zillion percent universal desire. And I think that's connection. I think we are all striving to be accepted enough to be connected, to feel the connection, to connect to somebody else. And we see it with little kids and we see it with teenagers, even when they're screaming at you, leave me alone and slam their door. They want you to come in and sit on the bed next to them. Right? And as adults, we feel that also like that, that's the whole thing. And I think part of it is like, you know, that's really how HaKadosh Baruch Hu programmed us. Like literally in the beginning of everything, we're told that we're not supposed to be alone. Right. So our essence is to connect. And I think because of Corona and I think because of screen time and because of social media and because of the rat race and because of Ivy leagues and expensive jobs and all these things, um, we're using all of, I mean, I'm not using Corona, God yeah. forbid, like let's get rid of it. But like all of these things in our lives are sort of meant to be here to serve us. Um, but I think very often those are the same things that get in the way of connection. Um, and I think that that drive, that desire to feel connection is like the thing. The number I think it's the one whole, thing. Whole story. Yeah, that's so true. But it's funny because people don't act like they want to feel connected. We, right. we live in a, in a world where independence and autonomy is praised and lauded. And depending on others and connecting with others is more like only through the internet, only through social media. But when it comes to face to face, you're seeing less and less of that. Um, I know there's a lot of like preaching of vulnerability and all of that, but I don't know if people are being so vulnerable when it comes to face-to-face connections it's like people are scared of that yeah they're scared of that because of what you said like maybe all these things that are meant to serve us and help us connect instead they're actually distracting us more and more away where it's the reason why when a family sits on the dinner table instead of talking to each other they're all on their phones or when friends Mm -hmm. get together instead of playing with one another and talking to each other and doing things that help them connect, they're connecting by making a TikTok video or exchanging snap Snapchat pictures when they're all in the same room. Yes. Yeah, it's hard. Look, we are, we are an incredibly fascinating species, human beings, because 
we are very good at saying what we want, but we're not so great at pursuing it, right? Like we say we want to be healthy and then we eat awful and we don't exercise and we drive everywhere, right? We say we want to be close, we want connection, but then we do all these things, We, you know, right? So we're a bit hypocritical, yeah. right? We have a lot of inconsistencies in our lives and, and I think it's okay. You know, I'm not throwing all of us under the bus. I think a little awareness goes a long way. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think just remembering what's at our core, why are we doing all of this? Like, what is the purpose of all of this? It's a simple question with a very complicated answer, but if we can remember to ask ourselves that question, everything else sort of falls into place. You know, like what matters and what doesn't matter, how we spend our time, how we don't spend our time. If we ask ourselves, like, why am I even here? I think things have a way of, you know, just falling into place for us. It's a question of are we keeping up our end of the deal of asking ourselves that question as frequently as we need to. Why am I even here? I love that. I think that's an important question to have plastered on my wall (laughs) since I'm so into notes. (laughs) And it helps me focus on what's important. Whereas mm-hmm. not to just put notes and reminders on my to-do list, like buy milk. And of course, that's important, obviously, to nurture your family and yourself. And it's important to remember your keys before you leave the house. But I think what we're forgetting mostly, which I think this episode is mainly about, is what is the essence of everything that we're doing? What is the meaning behind it? Why are we doing what we're doing? Why am I even here? Why am I even here? What is my purpose? And I think to wake up with that message is revolutionary. It's life-changing to do that. How have I wished I'll remember to ask the question? Amen. Amen. Aviva, thank you so much for your time here, for sharing your experience about how you went from one place to another, not just physically, but also career-wise, and also showing us your Israel story about how you made Aliyah, and talking to us about ADHD, ADD, and all the nuances about it. I really learned a lot from you. I have one last question. It's a very broad question, <laughs> but I always love to end with this question. It's, I'm so nervous. <laughs> no, it's what are your hopes and dreams? Oh, my gosh. Okay, so if you're asking in multiples, so that makes it easier because I don't have to narrow it down to one. The first one is let's just get rid of corona. Let's yes. just get this thing out of here. Amen. Let's just get back to the business. Let's keep the good stuff that we've learned from corona about how we spend our time and where we spend our time and how we prioritize. Let's keep that good stuff. Let's get rid of all the stuff that is just awful and painful and heavy and tragic. Amen. Um, I, I hope and dream that my kids are healthy, happy adults. I, I, this is going to make me sound like a crazy person, but I actually daven that who, I have five daughters. So like wow. whoever my machatanim are, wherever they are in the world, that like they're raising my sons-in-law with what they need. Like it makes me sound Beautiful. crazy, but that, that's right like that's it those are the hopes and dreams it's not that complicated I want to feel the shechina I want to be 
successful and comfortable and connected. And I want everybody to, to feel that. That's amen, what I want. Amen, amen. It was and, really... And, and, and a Manny Petty wouldn't hurt either. Yeah, true. <laughs> I kind of need one right now, actually. <laughs> Aviva, you were such a pleasure. I learned so much from you. And if people want to connect with you and also... Where can people find you? Okay, so I'm on Instagram at Dr. Viva Goldstein. I'm on Facebook at Dr. Viva Goldstein. I have a website, which is just avivagoldstein.com. You see there's a pattern. Um, <laughs> yes. And any one of those ways, you'll be, able to, you'll be able to find me any one of those ways. Awesome. Thank you so much, Aviva. It was a true pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to leave a review, subscribe, and feel free to reach out with feedback and questions. If you want to learn more about what I do, you can check out my Instagram page at coach.kk and check out the link in my bio. Let's connect.